God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. And we are on the third part of our teaching, Who is Delivered for Our Offenses? Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 25 now. It says that, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification? And in John 19, verse 1, we resume our record. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate, after failing to get Jesus released by the crowd, then orders his scourging and what shall be seen to be an attempt to gain sufficient pity for Jesus in order for the mob to change its mind. This in no way alters Pilate's sin, but only shows his reluctancy to put a man to death whom he surely knew did not deserve it. Yet, as is always the case, how a man feels matters little if his actions do not match his intentions. For it is not what we think or hope to do which will determine the final judgment upon our lives, but rather what we do. Our life then shall be judged for the actions we have taken, not the good intentions that we hope to have done. Good intentions meaning nothing without appropriate actions to follow them. And like where faith without works is dead, so it is if what we are trying to do never gets accomplished. Beware also, dear Christian, of misleading yourself to believe that just because you wanted to do good, if it is not done, then it will ultimately make no difference at all. Verse 2 now. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Gill on this verse. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns. This was an emblem of his being surrounded by wicked men, sons of Belial, comparable to thorns. Whilst he hung, suffering on the cross, and of the sins of his people, compassing him about, which were as thorns, very grievous to him, and of his various troubles in life, and of his being made a curse for us at death, thorns being the produce of the curse upon the earth, end quote. It was Adam's sin by listening to his wife and hearkening unto her words to eat of the tree of life, instead of believing God's word that brought a curse on the earth as well as upon man. From this curse, thorns and thistles replaced the Garden of Eden, which was once an environment of fruit and abundance. See, Adam's sin had earthly and physical consequences, teaching us that though sinners know it not, sin will not only affect the inside of the heart, but also the labor it will take to feed themselves and supply for their earthly needs. The earth not yielding the greatest of her capacity because of Adam's sin. Yes, for the sinner, the earth rendering her abundance will be hard. Those then who walk away from God and choose not to obey God's word will enter into a life of manifold curses, both in their souls and affecting their survival. Sin causing what was once a potential fertile field to become barren and forsaken. Thus, those who forsake the path of righteousness will discover internal and external sufferings because of it. Fruit replaced by thorns and thistles, joy replaced by sorrow. Laboring by the sweat of his brow came from man's choice to sin against God's will for his life. Thus, those who abandon obedience to God shall not, history shows, be taken care of by God. Not obeying the Lord and his will for your life will result in a forfeiture of the Lord providing for your life. Sin having consequences, which like thorns, makes life difficult.
the crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head, unknown to the Roman soldiers, for they used it to mock him, exemplified how Christ came to absorb not only the curse of the law, but the curse placed upon Adam and his environment. Observe also that it is only God who can remove the curse of sin. Only God who can remove it simply because it comes from his judgment. The Lord thus pronounced judgment upon Adam's life, and only God's second Adam could reverse it, Jesus Christ. So that if men want to be freed from the bondage of sin and difficult self-preservation, then to God they must turn. For only when men turn back to the Lord can the good ground of life again yield to them its intended fruit. The Old Testament explicitly declared that if men would return to obedience to do God's will, then this would produce a return to God's blessings. And this is lengthy, but I believe it's worth reading. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all of his commandments, which I have commanded thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, and the increase of thy kind, and thy flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee and holy people unto himself. As he hath sworn unto thee, thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God which I command thee this day, to observe and to do them. These are the Old Testament promises, that if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments. God's blessings coming from men's spiritual obedience. Obedience to the Lord, therefore, always producing blessings from the Lord. Jesus also stated this, and in John chapter 10, verse 10, we read, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Hence, where men previously obeyed the law, 
in order to receive God's blessings. Now it is the Son of God who is to be both obeyed and followed. For only when men make Jesus Christ their Lord will a more than abundant life be given to them. Occupation with mere religion will not produce this, as it takes a sincere and genuine connection to the Son of God for any to receive an abundant life from God. Barnes on this verse, John 10, 10. I am come that they might have life, might have it more abundantly. Literally, that they may have abundance or that which abounds. The word denotes that which is not absolutely essential to life, but which is super added to make life happy. They shall not merely have life, simple bare existence, but they shall have all those super added things which are needful to make that life eminently blessed and happy. It would be vast mercy to keep men merely from annihilation or hell, but Jesus will give them eternal joy, peace, the society of the blessed, and all those exalted means of felicity which are prepared for them in the world of glory, end quote. So that though the mockers of Jesus knew it not, their placing the crown of thorns on his head actually signified his taking on the sin and curse of the world. 1 Corinthians 3, 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. How fitting then it is that when men devise to carry out evil, the Lord God uses it for his own people's good. In the end then, the soldiers' attempts to mock Jesus turn out to be the foreshadowing of the great and triumphant victory accomplished by the Son of God. And they put on him a purple robe, again to demean and bring shame to their captive. The soldiers put a purple robe over Christ's shoulders and back, which had a mix of both fresh and dry blood after his body had been scourged. It was thus not enough for these small and heinous men to inflict pain, but they also rejoiced in performing acts of degrading humiliation. Men, therefore, can be so hardened by sin that all empathy leaves them, making their hearts calloused and insensitive to whatever humanity they once possessed. Again, the soldiers' actions portray a much deeper meaning than they would ever know. Gill on this verse. And they put on him a purple robe. Matthew calls it a scarlet robe, and the Arabic and Persic versions here a red one. It was very probably one of the soldiers' coats, which are usually red. This was still in derision of him as a king, and was an emblem of his being clothed with our purple and scarlet sins, and of the bloody sufferings of his human nature for them, and through which we come to have a purple covering, or to be justified by his blood, and even to be made truly kings as well as priests unto God, end quote. Little also did these soldiers know that their torturing and humiliating Jesus actually led to his glorification, Philippians 2, 8 and 9. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The blood also that seeped into the robe put on Jesus is what gives the efficacy for first his removal of men's sins, but also for his exalted position over all of men. Yes, the flogging and scourging had a place, 
but not simply to humiliate Jesus as intended by the guards, but rather to make Jesus worthy of the reward that God purposed for his son. As it was Christ's suffering for sin that ultimately produced his own glorification, so that because Jesus poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors, for these reasons has God lifted him up to divide him a portion with the great. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Barnes on this verse. All his work of humiliation, and all his toils and sufferings, and all the merit of his intercession became necessary in order to his triumph and to the spread of the true religion. In consequence of all these toils and pains and prayers, God would give him the victory over the world and extend his triumphs around the globe, end quote. The soldier's physical torture of Christ now turned to verbal taunts, verse 3, and said, and these are the soldiers, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Pulpit commentary on this. They kept on coming to him and saying to him, in sportive mockery of his supposed kingship and utter scorn of the nation, whose messianic hope they derided. Hail, King of the Jews! They did a sham obeisance to him, having elected him as Roman guards often did, an emperor on the field of battle. They kept on offering him blows on the face, strokes with the hands or with rods. Hengstenberg, recalling here, that they put a reed in his hand, symbol of a scepter, Suppose that he refused to hold it, in consequence of which they took it from him and smote him with it. The awful indignity was a wondrous prophecy. Nay, from that very hour he began to reign. That crown of thorns has been more lasting than any royal diadem. Those cruel insults have been the title deeds of his imperial sway, by which he has mastered the nations. He was wounded, bruised, and for the iniquities of us all." End quote. John 19, verse 4 now. Pilate therefore went again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. Offered now as a spectacle, Jesus is presented to the mob in humiliation. Wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, he is brought out after his night of torture with the slight hope that what he has suffered would satisfy his bloodthirsty accusers. Yet even his battered body would not be enough for those who hated everything about God's Son. In truth, though, also, it would not be enough for God as well. For Jesus must not only be mocked, humiliated, and tortured by men, but he must die for each and every one of their sins as well. Jesus needing to fully do God's will and pay the entire penalty for sin. Hence, though the mob would get their wish, it was only because it was part of God's divine plan. Christ's ultimate victory also is that not only has Christ been raised to glory, 
but so shall also those who have believed in him. In hindsight, then, those who instigated, planned, and executed Christ's death, if they would have known God's accomplishments through it, the word of God states, would have restrained from crucifying God's Son. In truth, then, it was Jesus' enemies' own ignorance which God used to accomplish His divine purpose. 1 Corinthians 2.8 Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So great is the victory of the cross that even Christ's enemies, in retrospect, would have not engaged themselves in His execution. However, also horrific it was that Jesus must die for our sin does not even slightly compare to the glorification of God's people that has come from it. Every true Christian having the death of God's Son to thank for the spiritual glorification that God has given them. And though the price Jesus paid for our deliverance was steep, its rewards have been proven to be much more greater than any could have imagined at the time. Pilate, now hoping for Jesus' acquittal, utters these memorable words, Behold the man, Ellicott on this verse. Behold the man, Pilate's Eche Hamo is an appeal to the multitude. That picture of suffering, is it not enough? Will none in that throng lift up a cry for mercy and save him from the death for which the Sanhedrin are calling? That St. John's narrative is that of an eyewitness relating what he himself saw and remembered, end quote. The Apostle John, having those images seared in his memory, even after Jesus' resurrection, reminds us of this astounding scene. So that like Peter, John was not only an eyewitness to Jesus' glory in resurrection, but was first an eyewitness to his sufferings before it, 2 Peter 1.16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John, like Peter, wrote exactly as his very own eyes had seen. Christianity is, therefore, not based on myths and fables, but has its foundation historical eyewitness accounts of which one we are reading now. And these accounts are all supported by the Holy Spirit that will enter men's hearts as their own personal witness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus when men make him their Lord. 1 John 3, 24. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Every true Christian possessing the witness of the Holy Spirit, proving the validity of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Yes, every Christian will have his own personal witness that his belief in Jesus is valid. John 19, verse 6 now. When the chief priests, therefore, an officer saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Verse 7 now, the Jews answered, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. From the wild chance of crucify him, crucify him, then comes the real reason for the Jews' desire to put Jesus to death, because he made himself the Son of God. 
From sedition then, their arguments against Jesus changed to the real reason they sought his execution, which was because Jesus had said that he was God's son. So that with the son's coming, centuries of religious tradition would be viewed as what it really was, only by and for man. For nothing will shatter the traditions and religions of men more than when a true representation of heaven appears. So also men are much more willing to receive men who come in their own name than those who come in the name of the Father. John chapter 5, verse 43. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Jesus' teaching that men will more readily respond to those who come in their own human name and speak only of themselves than he who came in the Father's name. In short, this is because the world will receive its own over anyone who truly comes from God. Also, most men merely desire to use the Lord's name, but will reject any true presence of God himself. 2 Timothy 3, 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Jesus is thus threatening to these religious men's lives simply because he will reveal their true relationship with God, of which they actually had none. Their religious hypocrisy, unable to remain concealed once they come into contact with the true ministry of God's Holy Son. Light manifests darkness, and so did Christ's ministry reveal the darkness which constituted the Jewish religion of the day. Christ therefore threatened everything false in man, and especially so for those who falsely use God's name for their own purposes, but then inwardly refuse God's power over themselves. The sincere and genuine preaching of Jesus thus will do the same today and sadly get the same negative response. See, men do not like their hypocrisy revealed. They do not like, yea, rather loathe when their true condition before the Lord is exposed. This is why they killed God's prophets before Jesus, and this is why they would do the same to God's Son. Men despising when God reveals their true character. The exposure of light to the criminal produces an extreme hatred directed towards its source. Men hating nothing more than when their evil deeds are exposed. John 3:19. And this is the condemnation, or God's condemnation of man that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Men thus will and do on a consistent basis love darkness over light. Man's ultimate condemnation from God will come from the fact that he loved and will choose darkness over light. Barnes on this verse. Men are said to love darkness more than they do light when they are better pleased with error than truth with sin than holiness, with Belial than Christ, end quote. Verse 8 now of John 19. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Pilate, uncertain as to Jesus' true identity, upon hearing the claim that Jesus said he was the Son of God, then has a stinging and dreadful thought. Perhaps Jesus is who he said he was. The scripture stating that Pilate was the more afraid, teaches us that from the beginning, Pilate could have very well suspected 
that Jesus was a figure of high authority. Pilate's exposure to light, bringing out fear in himself. And now upon hearing from Christ's accusers, their real charge that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God produces an even greater fear in Pilate. Was this Jesus, this man whom he had just scourged and then paraded in front of the religious mob with a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe draped about him, really the Son of God? See, no man is afraid of a lie. None are afraid unless they deem themselves to have done an error. Thus, Pilate's fear can be directly linked to his own actions. Verse 9 now, And went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate, returning to the judgment hall, with fear and intrepidation, asked Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus, knowing that Pilate could never understand the answer, nor was worthy of any more enlightenment than had already been given, remains quiet. Christ had spoken what needed to be spoken about his identity, and no more was needed to be said. It is reasonable to believe also that this unjust trial of Jesus had a lasting effect on the Roman governor, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit would later come, and Christ's followers would only increase in both number and boldness, proving to the world that the death of the Son of God did in no way affect the advancement and growth of his ministry. Verse 10 now. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? I hardly doubt that there was much force or power in Pilate's words, though they seem on the service to be commanding. For those possessing fear cannot portray themselves with confidence. Yes, Pilate held a position that assumed reverence should be given him, but in truth it meant little to have this worldly title and position when face to face with God's only begotten Son. See, it is never position that commands true respect, but only the man who holds it. It is thus the man and not the title that gives true authority in life. So that though Pilate was a Roman governor and did have the earthly ability to either release Jesus or send him to his death, this is where his power ceased. As the body may be slain, but no man has the power to destroy the inward faith of another. Killing a man's body, therefore, is a far cry from being able to have any influence whatsoever over either his soul or his spirit. Matthew 10, 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, and this is in reference to God, which is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Men thus should not fear other men, and their limited ability to kill anything of real value, but rather they should fear God, who can send both the soul and the spirit of a man either to heaven or hell. John chapter 19, verse 11 now. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath a greater sin. Jesus refuses Pilate's claim of having any significant power over him, declaring to Pilate also that what power he might have thought himself to have was only because God had given it to him. Evil, therefore, has no power over Christ at any time in his life, except when it's fitted to God's purposes. For it was not the devils who cast out Jesus, but Jesus who cast out the devils.
Like with Job, therefore, Satan is only permitted to bring harm to God's elect and cannot do it at his own mere will. We should not therefore be afraid of what the devil may plan for us unless by sin we have moved ourselves towards him. For it is still God who reigns even in the kingdoms of this world. Christ's words now, He that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Jesus, in speaking by heavenly authority, makes his own judgment of where sin is really to be found. The greater sin, therefore, Christ states, is that of the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders, though in no way does this excuse Pilate in his sin. Christ then, in one short sentence, informs Pilate as to who really has the power to judge in the world. It is not the religious leaders, but rather Christ himself. For in truth, it would be Jesus who would judge the sin in those who had placed him in Pilate's hand, and not they him. In retrospect then, it was not really Jesus being tried for his sin, but the Jews who were being tried for theirs. So that in fact, this mockery of a trial of the Lord Jesus was actually a very solemn test of God to determine how men would respond to his own presence among them. And though yes, there was a trial taking place, it was a completely different trial than what most people thought. This trial, ultimately a trial of men's hearts by God after their exposure to the light of God evidence in his son. Ultimately also, this failure to receive the truth of God forced God to take his message of salvation, which was first sent to the Jews, to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 28, verse 27, in reference to the Jews, for the heart of this people is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. It is then wise to remember that if men will not hear his word, then God will find someone else who will. John 19, verse 12 now. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Hence, once weak-charactered individuals are themselves put in jeopardy, you will see they're caving in to outside pressure. Thus, when push comes to shove, men who have not strong internal makeup will never do what is right to do as they can easily be influenced to change their minds. Men thus, without God's spirit to put steel in their spines, will always cave under outside human pressure. He who holds no true beliefs will easily change whatever beliefs he has if there is any personal cost needed to pay. Verse 13, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. Ellicott, John 19, 13, he brought Jesus forth. He hesitates no longer about the course to be taken. His own position and life may be in danger, and he prepares, therefore, to pronounce the final sentence which must necessarily be done from the public judgment seat outside the palace, end quote. John 19, 14. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, 
And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible. It was the preparation, that is, the day before the Jewish Sabbath. And about the sixth hour, the true reading here is probably the third hour, or 9 a.m., which agrees best with the whole series of events, as well as with the other evangelists. He saith to the Jews, Behold your king, having now made up his mind to yield to them, he takes a sort of quiet revenge on them by this irony, which he knew would sting them. This only reawakens their cry to dispatch Jesus. When presented with the mocking declaration of Behold your King, the people who had resisted and hated Roman rule for around a century now side with having Caesar as their king. Hence, instead of choosing to be liberated from their sins and forgiven through God's mercy, they rather choose the military occupation of the Romans. Choosing Caesar over God and claiming Caesar as their God, proving the nature of those who delivered Jesus to death. Sadly, today also, many will choose tyrants over the Redeemer, dictators over spiritual freedom, and socialism over salvation. So that when wicked and carnal men have to choose, their distaste and inward hate towards heavenly things will surpass even oppressive human governments. This reveals how much ungodly and unrighteous men who love their freedom to sin will then choose to be governed by sinners like themselves. A wicked people so despising the Lord that they will choose carnal power over them, even if it is oppressive as their government of choice. Verse 16 now. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. Benson on this verse. Then delivered he him, having now laid aside all thoughts of saving Jesus, Pilate gave him up to the will of his enemies and commanded the soldiers to prepare for his execution. And they took Jesus and led him away, out of the city to a place which it seems lay on the western side of Jerusalem, but a little without the boundaries of it, unto a place called a place of the skull. The place of execution had this name, given it from the criminal's bones which lay scattered there. Golgotha is a Syriac word and signifies a skull or head." End quote. The scripture had stated that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. This is seen then by even his execution being where transgressors and criminals were buried. No imagery is more vivid in illustrating how Jesus became sin than the location where he was led to die. Its name being the place of the skull, the human garbage dump, where the bones of those criminals who had been put to death still remain for the living to see. A landfill, if you will, of the remains and skeletons of those who had been put to death by the Romans for their crimes against the state. Golgotha was thus the very emblem of hell itself. And it is here that Jesus was led as a criminal to die for our sins. Verse 18, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. He who came to save sinners was first crucified by them and now hung on the cross with them. And though Jesus had arrived at God's and his own appointed ordained destination, still it is heart-wrenching to observe. 
hoisted up on the cross and between two malefactors, Jesus now waited for his eventual death. Beaten, bloody, and fatigued beyond what most can imagine. Isaiah 52, 4, in reference to this condition of Christ. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Barnes on this verse. As many were astonished at thee. This verse is closely connected with the following, and they should be read together. The sense is, as many were shocked at him. His form was so disfigured, and his visage so marred, that he shall sprinkle many nations. That is, the one fact would correspond with the other. The astonishment would be remarkable. The humiliation would be wonderful and suited to attract the deepest attention. And so his success and his triumph would correspond with the depth of his humiliation and sufferings. Here it evidently refers to the fact that he was disfigured and destitute of apparent beauty and attractiveness from his abject condition and his sufferings. They were struck with amazement that one so abject that had so little that was attractive should presume to lay claim to be the character of the Messiah. This idea is more fully expressed in the following chapter. Here it is stated in general that his appearance was such as to excite universal astonishment and probably to produce universal disgust." End quote. The Lord Jesus and the body that had done so much good for the brokenhearted now hung, suspended in agony on the cross. The evil of man and the divinity of God meeting each other at precisely the right time and according to God's prophecies. Yet through Christ's crucifixion, although unknown to those observing at the time, other sons of God would soon be born. For the corn of wheat, Jesus, which was being crucified, needed to die so that a great harvest of spiritual life could be brought forth from him. The Jews and the Romans then, by murdering he who was life, actually brought forth more life. Jesus spoke of this great hidden truth earlier in his ministry, that his death would actually produce an abundance of new spiritual life. In John chapter 12, verse 24, we read, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Jesus knew this well, and this was why by faith he endured the cross. Matthew Henry commentary on this. A corn of wheat yields no increase unless it is cast into the ground. Thus Christ might have possessed his heavenly glory alone without becoming a man. Or after he had taken man's nature, he might have entered heaven alone by his own perfect righteousness, without suffering or death. But then no sinner of the human race could have been saved." End quote. For us then to go to heaven, a divine being from heaven needed to die, so that the life that is his might sprout and produce spiritual life beyond his own. Jesus' death is therefore that dying of a glorious spiritual creature, whereby other spiritual life arose from his death. Thus the sacrifice of Christ's life was actually the beginning of a new spiritual life for those who would believe upon him. Christ is that corn of wheat sent from God so that the spiritual and eternal life of God could be spread throughout the world. Jesus' coming from heaven, ultimate purpose then was to bring the life of heaven down to earth. And for this reason, Christ must die so that we might live. The Geneva Study Bible.
A weak corn dies when it is changed in the ground and becomes the root of a new fruitful plant. From the physical death then of God's heavenly Son, therefore, has come the opportunity for a new spiritual life to fallen ones. Jesus, by dying on the cross and being buried in the earth to then be risen from the dead by God, is the very process that was divinely used whereby a new birth could be given to men. As Jesus, God's only begotten Son, needed to come and die for sin before the prophecies of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit could be fulfilled. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He, in reference to Christ, shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. It thus would be Jesus who would send forth the promise of the Father, so that men could be endued with spiritual power from on high. Luke 24, 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father unto you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. See, although men did not initially know it, it would be the crucified and then glorified Son of God who would send forth the prophesied Spirit of God upon the earth. Jesus is thus the sender of God's Holy Spirit to men. It is He who will baptize true believers with a powerful presence of God. None also will be given the Holy Spirit who do not sincerely and genuinely make Jesus Christ their Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Spirit or by possession of the Holy Spirit. For though men may baptize with water, they cannot baptize with the fire from heaven, emblematic of the Holy Spirit of God. Ultimately, then, it shall be only those baptized by Christ, by His sending the Holy Spirit to them, which shall be made fit for God's upcoming spiritual kingdom. Jesus, thus dying for sin, had, as God's final plan, the sending forth of His Spirit. The cross of Christ purposed for the sending forth of the Spirit of God to men, to then ensure their salvation. Amen.